Hello and welcome to the Killer Kind Podcast and happy Halloween. I was out last week because I went to Halloween Horror Nights in Orlando. It was such a fun trip and I was lucky enough to go through all 10 haunted houses, all of which were fantastic. My favorite was the Stranger Things 4. That's the one I was looking forward to the most and it was insane. It was such a good house. I love haunted houses personally. I know it's not for everybody, even though I do end up screaming and running through them most of the time by the end of it. But such a fun time. And if you like haunted houses, I highly recommend you go one year and just please do me a favor, save up and do the RIP tour. It's kind of like a play on VIP if you don't know. I don't think I could do it any other way now, even though it's expensive, (laughs) because we got to see all 10 houses. And at the end, um, our tour guide told us that we actually saved 10 and a half hours of waiting in line, which is just insane. Each house had over an hour wait, and it was crazy. I'd never seen anything like it. One other thing I want to mention to you guys is last week I was briefly on another friend's podcast through my top five true crime cases, and it was a blast. This October, they've been having people on and people calling in to give their scary stories, their real life scary stories. And unfortunately, I had one. <laughs> I'm on the Halloween Stories 3 episode, and that was released on October 21st. So be sure to check that out if you haven't already, especially if you're still in that spooky mood. It's perfect to listen to on this cold Halloween afternoon or whenever you're listening to this. (laughs) I also wanted to say thank you to everyone who listened to my last Halloween episode on The Slender Man. That one scared a lot of you and I apologize, but hey, I warned you. That's all I got to (laughs) say. But You still seem to love it. And I do want to apologize, though, to the children whose parents listened to that episode because multiple people told me that their kids are not allowed to go to a sleepover again. (laughs) My child included. So if you haven't listened to it yet, be sure to check that out because it's a scary one for sure. Now, let's move on and get into today's episode. It's a case that inspired a real-life horror movie, one of my all-time favorite horror movies. So... You know when I read the words, the real life Jeepers Creepers, that I had to cover it. That's all the preview I'm going to give you, just in case you haven't seen the movie. And even if you have, that's all. That's where I'm going to leave it. <laughs> so without further ado, let's get into the murder of Marilyn Depew and the real life Jeepers Creepers. Jeepers Creepers, where'd you get those Jeepers? Jeepers Creepers, where'd you get those eyes? On Sunday, April 15, 1990, a couple, Ray and Marie Thornton, were on a traditional weekend drive along a rural highway not far outside of Coldwater, Michigan. They had been playing a game of making up words and phrases from the license plates of passing cars. As Ray turned on to Snow Perry Road, he heard what he described as a rumbling sound coming up behind him. They both looked back and could see an older model green van speeding towards them. It quickly passed them, and although they thought it was a little strange, they didn't think much of it. That was until they came upon an old schoolhouse about two miles up the road. When they get to the schoolhouse, Marie sees a man carrying what looks like something wrapped in a white sheet, covered in blood. 
Now, if you've ever seen the opening scene to the Jeepers Creepers movie, this all sounds very, very familiar. But the only difference in this is that in the movie, it's an old church instead of an old schoolhouse. They see the Jeepers Creeper, and he's throwing what looks like a body covered in a white sheet with blood on it. Now, as Ray and Marie pass the schoolhouse, they notice that the car at the schoolhouse is the same old green van that had sped past them earlier. So as they continue driving, they're trying to figure out what they should do. Obviously, this is suspicious and a little scary. So should they turn around, go back, and try to confirm what they saw or maybe try to help? Did they need to call police or should they just stay out of it? However, while they were trying to figure out what to do, they looked back and they saw the same green van in their rearview mirror. The van sped up behind the two and stayed on their bumper, basically harassing them for two miles. Eventually, Ray decided to turn down a road to get out of its way. However, Marie knew that they needed to get that license plate number. This car was acting way too suspicious, and she knew she needed to do something. Marie did try to remember the license plate number on her own so they could report it to police. However, she said all she could remember were the first two letters, which were Z and G. So Marie decided they needed to go back and follow the green van to get the rest of the license plate number. I don't know about you, but this would be one tough decision for me. But what would you do in that situation? Would you go back and follow that guy? I don't know if I could do it. I hope that I would, but still it'd be hard. (laughs) But either way, they do it. They turn around and they decided to go back and find the green van. Shortly after making their way back, they spot the green van pulled over to the side of the road. They notice that a man is outside of the van with both front doors open. But they notice that he's kneeling down towards the back of the car. And to their surprise, he's removing the license plate. It's like he knew they were coming. But that wasn't all they saw. On the inside of the passenger door, they noticed what appeared to be blood covering the interior of the door. That's when they knew something was seriously wrong. So, since they weren't able to get the license plate number, Together, they decided they should go back to the schoolhouse and try to find the sheet or what might have caused the bloodstains on it. Just like in the movie, they're faced with a dilemma. What if they go back and try to help whoever might be there, whoever might be hurt? What if they find out later they could have saved someone's life by turning back? So again, as hard as the decision must have been, they decided to do what they can to help. When Ray and Marie made it back to the schoolhouse, it only took a few minutes for them to find a wadded-up bedsheet covered in blood stuffed in a shallow hole in the ground. But that was all they saw. No other signs of a person or anything else, just the sheet. But rightfully so, they were freaked out and quickly ran back to their car and took off to find a phone to alert police of what they saw. Little did the couple know they had just encountered a man by the name of Dennis Dupuy, a man that took things too far when trying to keep control over his family. Dennis Dupuy was 47 years old and was married to a beautiful woman, 49, Marilyn Dupuy. The couple shared three children, two daughters, Jennifer and Julie, and a son named Scott. I couldn't ever find their exact ages, but from what I understand, Jennifer was around a senior in high school, Scott was possibly around 12 years old, 
and unsure of Julie's age, but from what I understand, she's kind of in between the age of the two. So she was the middle child. Marilyn worked as a high school guidance counselor, and Dennis was a property assessor, whatever that is. (laughs) For the most part, they were happy, and they were a middle-class, normal family. However, in the last few years of the marriage, Dennis became more and more controlling and appeared to be paranoid and became accusatory of Marilyn. Reports claim that Dennis didn't like Marilyn being active within the community, and she was popular in the community because she loved her students and the students loved her. She was a popular guidance counselor, and Dennis didn't care for the attention she received. Dennis and Marilyn started fighting more and more, even in front of the kids. Now, since the kids witnessed the fights between their parents, they noticed that Dennis was always the instigator, and this obviously affected their relationship with their dad, and they started to resent him and ultimately pulled away from him. Now, when this started, Dennis started accusing Marilyn of turning the children against him. Not the fact that his kids have their own minds and can make their own decisions based on their father being mean to their mom. You know, God forbid they think for themselves. Either way, this didn't help matters, and it only made things worse for the married couple and just the family as a whole. Marilyn started telling her co-workers that she wanted out of her marriage. She said that he hadn't been physically abusive, but that she mentally was exhausted. And I'm sure she was just emotionally abused as well which was taking a toll on Marilyn. She explained to her coworkers that she was just exhausted and tired of being controlled and tired of fighting every day. She wanted out. So after 18 years of marriage, Marilyn officially filed for divorce in 1989, telling her attorney that Dennis was trying to control every decision in her life. Now, after Marilyn filed for divorce, Dennis sort of changed a little. It was a little eye-opening for him, if you will. So at first, he changed his attitude. It was clear that he didn't want the divorce, but he didn't seem to fight her on it. Instead, he started buying her things, doing things for her, trying to show her what a good man he was. However, it didn't work. The divorce eventually was finalized, and Marilyn was free. Dennis agreed to give Marilyn custody of the kids, and he was granted bi-weekly visitations with them. But, like I mentioned earlier, his relationship with his children wasn't great, and they didn't want to go visit him. They complained almost every time they had to go. And obviously, Dennis could tell they didn't want to be there. I don't know if they ever told him that they didn't want to go, but either way, he knew that they didn't want him around. So, this pissed Dennis off. I mean, he already thought Marilyn was turning the kids against him, so this only made him feel stronger about that. Dennis also agreed to give Marilyn their family home and most of their property. However, as part of their divorce agreement, I don't, I don't really know what the wording is, but as part of their agreement, Dennis was able to still have access to the guest house on their property, which he used as an office. So he would go there during the day and do his work and go back to wherever he was living at the time. And many have said this might have been Dennis's last-ditch effort to save his marriage and try to stay in Marilyn's life. However, this became an issue for Marilyn because Dennis didn't just go to the guest house during business hours and then go back to wherever he was staying. No, he used this to his advantage. This allowed Dennis to keep tabs on Marilyn 
and to keep an eye on his former family, if you will. However, this started taking a disturbing turn when Marilyn found out that Dennis was going into her house without her knowledge and certainly without her consent. Eventually, Marilyn changed the locks in order to regain control of her life. However, in early spring 1990, there was an instance where Marilyn arrived home to find Dennis sitting in the living room. She was obviously frightened by this, and she demanded that he leave immediately. After he left, Marilyn frantically went around the house, checking all the locks and windows. She was shocked and confused because all the windows and locks looked untouched, despite the fact that these were brand new locks and Dennis did not have a key. Three days prior to Easter Sunday, Dennis confides in a co-worker that he is depressed and he's not doing well. The co-worker claims that Dennis told him that he was feeling suicidal, but not only that, he also wanted to kill his ex-wife. Now, this was obviously alarming, but I'm sure the co-worker talked to Dennis and tried to calm him down and obviously tried to convince him that he didn't really want to do this. He didn't want to do either of those things. He didn't want to kill himself. He didn't want to kill his ex-wife. You know, you don't want to do it, kind of talking him off the ledge. Despite the seriousness of Dennis's claims, there was no report made. And now I don't want to fault the coworker here. I'm sure he didn't think Dennis would actually go through with it. And like I said, I'm sure he talked him down and thought all would be well. Now, this is Dennis Depew. I mean, he did everything he could to look like the loving father and family man. Yes, he was going through a hard time right now, but surely he didn't mean what he was saying. Now, in the same breath, (laughs) you know I'm going to say it, he probably should have reported it. It never hurts to speak up. Just always keep that in mind. Now, that brings us to Easter Sunday, 1990, just a few hours before Ray and Marie Thornton witnessed Dennis carrying a bloody sheet on a rural highway, which, as we know, inspired the 2001 Jeepers Creepers movie. So, that morning, Dennis DePew arrived at the home he used to share with his wife and kids. He was there to pick up the children, as it was his week of visitation. While there, one of the kids told Dennis that he didn't want to go with him. Then, the other two kids joined in and said they also didn't want to spend time with him that day. It was at this moment that Dennis snapped. He began yelling at his children, Some reports claim that he wrapped his arms around one of his kids' necks and and tried forcing him to come with him. At that point, Marilyn stepped in and tried to get Dennis to leave. However, when Marilyn got in the middle, he began yelling at her and ultimately ended up pushing Marilyn down. The only problem with that was Marilyn was standing at the top of the basement stairs. So when Dennis shoved her, She fell down a whole flight of stairs, landing at the bottom of the basement. Dennis then proceeded to walk down the stairs and continue his fit of rage by attacking Marilyn. Sadly, the three kids watched on in horror. The oldest child, Jennifer, ran next door to try to find some help. However, it wasn't long after this that Dennis forced Marilyn up the stairs. He stops and apologizes to his children and says that he overreacted and shouldn't have done what he did. He said he was going to take their mother to the hospital. So he puts the 49-year-old woman in his green Chevrolet van and takes off. So Dennis leaves in his van with his ex-wife. 
the cops show up to the Depew home, and the kids explain everything. At this point, the cops know they need to track down this van immediately, and they need to get to Maryland as soon as possible. Obviously, all the local hospitals are searched first, hoping that Dennis did in fact mean that he was going to take his beaten and bruised wife to the hospital for help. However, we know that isn't true. And that brings us back to what Ray and Marie Thornton saw that afternoon. As you remember, just like the Jeepers Creepers movie, two people are driving down a desolate two-lane highway, and they see a very suspicious van. In this case, it's the van of Dennis Depew. He comes speeding up behind them and passes them. Then two miles up the road, they see him outside carrying a bloody white sheet. I think of the scene in the movie where they look at each other and they're like, did you just see what I saw? Derry in the movie basically said, it looks like something wrapped and roped in a sheet. And then Trish is like wrapped, roped in a sheet with red stains on it or something to that effect. It's just, ugh, it's just chilling. I can't imagine witnessing something like that. But like we said, things get worse when they see the van with the door open and blood covering the interior of the car. So little did the Thorntons know that at the same time they called police to report what they saw, Jennifer Depew was calling the police to report the incident that took place between her parents, ultimately starting a manhunt for her father, Dennis. It didn't take Michigan State Police long to put the pieces together with the two 911 calls, and they realized that the mysterious green van reported by the Thorntons was that of Dennis Depew. So, forensics and law enforcement make their way to the old schoolhouse where Ray and Marie found the bloody sheet. The area was taped off, and nearby, forensics found tire tracks and a pool of blood. It was later determined that the tire tracks matched Dennis's van, and the blood found at the schoolhouse was positively identified to be that of Marilyn Depew's. Everyone involved in the case was now worried that Marilyn may not be alive any longer. The following day, everyone's fears became true when a highway worker discovered the lifeless body of the 49-year-old mother. She had been killed by one gunshot wound to the back of the head, and she was found lying in a ditch near a deserted road. The road was midway between the schoolhouse and the Depew home, according to an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. So at this point, Dennis Depew was a fugitive on the run, and he was wanted for murder. Over the next several days and weeks, Dennis sent a series of bizarre and rambling letters to friends and family, attempting to justify Marilyn's death. Seventeen letters in total, postmarked in Virginia, Iowa, and Oklahoma. The letters consisted of words from a bitter and selfish man, taking no accountability whatsoever. In these letters, he ranted over Marilyn's supposed tricks and lies. In one in particular, he said, quote, Marilyn had many, many opportunities to treat me fairly during the divorce, and she chose to string it out, trick me, lie to me, and when you lose your wife, children, and home, there's not much left. I was too old to start over. These letters continued for three months all carrying the same tone, even going as far to say that if anyone had been in his shoes, that they would have done the exact same thing. Yeah, Dennis, I'm sure. But in the same letter, he's including Bible verses, which many speculate that he's trying to 
remain likable and friendly. Like that would ever work. The guy's delusional. There's no better way to put it. In March 1991, though, there had been barely any progress made in the case. Dennis DePew had virtually disappeared, and the one-year anniversary was quickly coming up. So, investigators on the case were desperate to find him. Luckily, the case was featured on an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. Y'all can obviously guess that I love that show. (laughs) I'm sure you guys do, too. But this episode in particular blew this case wide open. The nationwide show reached homes of all over the country, including the home of a man by the name of Hank, who saw the episode in Dallas, Texas. As it was airing, Hank's girlfriend, Mary, arrived home. Now, let me pause for a quick second. From what I understand, Mary is not her real name. (laughs) The media and news reports all were calling her Mary. But when I watched the episode of Unsolved Mysteries, it said, we will call her Mary, and it had quotations around her name, which always means that's not their real name. They just don't want to release her actual name. But I'm going to call her Mary here, too. We'll just go with that. So she noticed that her boyfriend appeared nervous when she arrived home and somewhat frantic. He claimed that his mother had become sick and he needed to leave to go see her. He was running around the house in a panic, packing his belongings, and Mary didn't know what to believe because she felt like he was taking way more stuff than he needed to just for a short trip. Plus, when she first got there, he was blocking the TV and being weird. He also asked her to make a couple of sandwiches for him for the drive. And many believe this was just a tactic to keep her in the kitchen instead of the living room where the TV was. Before she could figure out what was going on, her boyfriend took off in his green 1984 Chevrolet van. Mary was confused, and I'm sure her mind was spinning, wondering what even just happened. Mary told Unsolved Mysteries that she knew something was troubling him, and she knew that she would never see him again. Shortly after the episode aired, one of Mary's friends called the police and told them that her friend's boyfriend, Hank, is the man that they're looking for on Unsolved Mysteries. There was no mistaking it. Now, before Mary had the time to figure out, again, what's happening here, the local police were at her door, and they explained that her boyfriend was actually a wanted man who had murdered his wife the previous year. They were able to show her a picture of Dennis DePew, and she was able to confirm that that was in fact her boyfriend, who she believed was named Hank. Mary was in shock, but she was more than willing to help them find this guy, so she gave them his new Texas license plate number. And it only took four hours to track down Dennis and his green van. He was found at the Louisiana state line between Louisiana and Mississippi. Louisiana state troopers tried to pull him over for speeding, but he didn't go down without a fight. He led them on a 15-mile police chase, speeding down several small back roads and two major highways and breaking through two police barricades. It was reported that he even attempted to run cars off the road in order to distance himself from the police tailing him. Realizing this wasn't going to end smoothly, police gave him some distance, but then it started firing at his back wheels. Dennis started swerving to avoid the gunshots, but it didn't help. One tire exploded, and seconds later, the other rear tire was shot out. Shortly after the van had come to a stop, Dennis decided to start shooting back. Sitting in the driver's seat, Dennis pulls out his handgun, presumably the same gun he shot his ex-wife with, 
and fires two shots from his front windshield and one through the driver's side window. He is surrounded by law enforcement with their guns drawn. So as soon as he starts shooting, so do they. Luckily, none of the shots were fatal, either direction, largely due to the boxes and items in Dennis's car, none of the bullets actually reached the 47-year-old. However, Dennis came to the point where he knew this wasn't working, and he ultimately decided to put an end to it himself. The man turned the gun on himself and ended the gunfight. Dennis DePew was dead. Ultimately, Dennis died without ever having to face justice. Dennis was buried at Eagle Cemetery in LaGrange County, Indiana, far away from his ex-wife's final resting place in Oakland County, Michigan. As tragic as this case was, it didn't die the day Dennis deputed. The case lived on, one through the original Jeepers Creepers, as we know, and also it became a local urban legend as well. It took on this boogeyman-type feeling on that stretch of highway that the Thorntons saw Dennis on that day. Rumor has it that at night you can still hear, and people have reported hearing, the rumbling of an old van speeding in the distant night. And so, the case lives on. To me, this is truly a case of nightmares in more ways than one, and it certainly feels like a horror movie, and it ultimately was. And that is the case of the real-life Jeepers Creepers. I would love to know your thoughts. Have you ever seen the movie? As I've mentioned, it's obviously my favorite. <laughs> I don't know why. Maybe it's just the simplicity of the movie itself. It feels like a just a comfort late 90s, early 2000s classic. It's just so simple, but thrilling at the same time. Plus, it made me fall in love with Justin Long, which I don't know why. <laughs> Which also means I've been watching the new Goosebumps show on Disney+. Plus. This is not sponsored. I just love it. <laughs> it's very good if you haven't watched it. Again, it's giving throwback to the old, um, what was it, 90s, early 2000s show. So good. Highly recommend. But, okay, enough with my obsessions. <laughs> that Dennis DePew is just garbage. I mean, he's disgusting. He is your typical narcissist who thought he had to control everyone and everything and thought that he could and justified it probably his whole life, honestly, up until the day he died. But my heart goes out to Marilyn's kids. Not only did they lose one parent, but they've lost both. Despite how they feel about their father, they no longer have parents, and that has to be extremely difficult. Now, I hope everyone has a fun and safe Halloween. I know I will. Be sure to head over to the podcast Instagram or Facebook page to leave your thoughts on today's episode. As bad as I am about posting stuff in between episodes, it's always a good idea to follow the podcast on social media because that's where I'll post any updates on episodes or just anything going on in my life, any delays in putting out the episode, anything like that. I always try to keep you guys updated. I'm not always the best at it, so bear with me, but it's been fun. So thank you so much for being with me this October. I've had a good time and I hope you guys all had a great spooky season. Now, can we start Christmas? Is it too soon? <laughs> also, if you can, be sure to follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening. If you haven't yet, that just helps people, helps promote the show, helps people find it, and it just means a lot. So thank you guys so much for listening. And as always, and especially tonight, stay safe out there. Bye, guys. <laughs>